All right. Ezekiel 27 is where we're going to be in just a moment. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you want to find that. As we continue our journey through the Bible. Well, as you're finding that, because it's in the Old Testament, I know it'll take a moment. Let's uh, talk a little college football. It started this weekend. Did anybody notice? A few of you. Um, Did you have a little fun with that? Some of you uh, that are kind of widowed during this time where whichever spouse zeroes in on it, uh, you have my sympathy. But it's a pretty cool time. And uh, it all got kicked off with uh, a pretty dazzling play. Anybody know who we're looking at right there? That's Andre Parker. He plays for Kent State. Thursday, he was the most popular man in college football temporarily. Kent State was playing Tosin State, and uh, there was a muffed uh, punt. He picked up the fumble, and he began to run, and he was running pretty fast uh, so that nobody could catch him for 58 yards. It was uh, a great highlight. And, of course, when uh, two of the other team Uh, finally tackled him, as is true to so much in college football or pro football these days. He uh, gets up off the ground, and he starts pounding his chest that would make King Kong envious, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I'm the man. And then, of course, he found out he had run the wrong direction. (laughs) And, of course, what makes that even more crazy is that the opposing team chased him and tackled him in the wrong direction. See, there's a lot of value in college football. This is why we watch. It's, it's got all these kinds of fun moments. Um, <laughs> I had to talk about that for a minute because it's so reflective of so much of life. We, you know, try and get that trophy academic achievement, that trophy degree We go after that trophy spouse. We get that trophy job, that trophy title. We go after those trophies of bonuses and and promotions and so on like that. And sometimes we've gotten all these trophies and all these awards, and we've been going in the wrong direction, so we're not even sure if we've won or not. We've lost our way. We've forgotten what it's all about. Does that sound familiar? I mean, you may know somebody. I'm not talking about you. You may know somebody that has chased a few things that led in the wrong direction. Today, we're going to be talking about how do you build a life. And, of course, uh, what we'll be contending for and what you find in the book of Ezekiel is that you build that life on and with God. Not on or with just your abilities and your talents and your skills and your charisma and your, your you know, wherewithal, but you do this with God and upon God. And the way that Ezekiel will get at that for us today is he'll uh, hold up a, a major city in his day as an example. So just to give you a little geographic perspective, uh, he's going to be talking about the city of Tyre, which was on kind of the northern coast of the Palestinian area. And this is right after uh, Jerusalem had been overcome by Babylon. 
Nebuchadnezzar had clobbered uh, Judah in the southern kingdom and uh, taken them into exile and made them their servants and slaves. And Tyre at that time was like the leading economic force in this whole region along with Jerusalem. And so it worked this way. Uh, if you were able to look at a bigger map, you see that this little strip that we call today Israel or Palestine uh, is kind of a major bridge between two large bodies of earth and people groups. And so, as you might imagine, commercially, a lot of trade happened through that area from one region to another region. And Tyre basically had control of the seas. And so everything that got shipped back and forth, they had something to do with. And they were very prosperous, very successful uh, in, in terms of coastal seaports, successful, uh, you know, great cities of its day. Think a New York or think a San Francisco, think even a Seattle. And they were very proud of who they were. They were very proud of what they had accomplished. They were very proud of being the man, being it. You know, they, if they could have jumped up off the sideline and pounded the chest like I'm the man, they would have done that. And when uh, Babylon overcame Jerusalem, which had been kind of in charge of all the caravan routes, Tyre had all the sea routes, Jerusalem had all the inland and caravan routes, well, Tyre begins to think, this is our time. Economically, let's seize this time. And we'll, we'll capture all of the routes across land and all of the routes across sea, and we'll be greater and greater and greater and greater. And uh, God says, no, you won't. In fact, I'm going to use you as an example for the rest of the watching world about what happens when you build a life minus me. And so, we will pick up in Ezekiel chapter 27. Uh, it's a time when God has given a word to Ezekiel to give to Tyre. And uh, beginning in verse 1, this is what he says, The word of the Lord came to me. Now you, son of man, raise a lamentation over Tyre. And say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrances to the sea, merchant of the peoples to many coastlands, thus says the Lord God. O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders have made perfect your beauty. They made all your planks of fir trees from Sinir. And they took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Of oaks of Bashan, they made your oars. They made your deck of pines from the coast of Cyprus, inlaid with ivory. Of fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail, serving as your banner. Blue and purple from the coast of Elisha was your awning. The inhabitants of Sidon and Arba were your rowers. Your skilled men, O Tyre, were in you. They were your pilots. The elders of Gabal and her skilled men were in you, caulking your seams. And all the ships of the sea with their mariners were in you to barter for your wares. And you go, what in the world are you reading, Scott? I thought we were getting, you know, a little practical here. And then all of a sudden you bring us all this, you know, poetic fairy stuff. Well, let's just see what uh, God had said through Ezekiel about and to 
Tyre. It is poetic. It is a lamentation. And he basically said this to them. You see people, you that, that rule the coast and that have such great grandeur, you know, around all of the, the coastal fairways. You have had the planks. It, it's like you're this in, incredible ship, this masterpiece of a ship whose planks for the hull were fir trees of Sinir. That was some very special lumber that they brought in. The mast of cedar from Lebanon, which was known for its cedar. Oars of oak from Bashan. Decks of pine that were inlaid with ivory from Cyprus. And embroidered sails, beautiful embroidered sails that uh, were made with linen from Egypt. And the awnings, uh, these canopies that would be placed over the deck for guys to be shielded from the sun, were of these incredible blues and purples from Elisha. And the crewmen were of some of the greatest stock of crewmen around. The surrounding area of Sidon and Arvid uh, had provided their crew. And, of course, it was all piloted by the superiority of the men of Tyre. In other words, God is saying if... uh, Every city in the world is like a ship in the fleet. You're the cream of the fleet. You're the top of the fleet. You're the prize of the fleet. But it's all about to come crashing down. Now, if you can remember historically, it was around 587 or 586 B.C. that Babylon came into Jerusalem and destroyed the Jewish nation. All of this maneuvering by Tyre and all of this boasting by Tyre and so on happened over the next year. It was just within that year that Babylon then turned their attention to Tyre. And all that Tyre thought was going to be their magnificent new day suddenly was undone. And a 13-year siege against Tyre by the Babylonians began in 585. Now, it does speak of uh, how tough they were. It took 13 years to undo them. And part of that's because they were on the coast and they were able to continue to bring supplies in from the waters. And uh, Babylon couldn't get them totally surrounded. It took 13 years, but they wiped them out and, and wiped them off the map. And Ezekiel makes it clear, God did that. Even though Babylon didn't acknowledge him, didn't uh, serve him, he worked in their midst and used them to chastise and to deal with this proud entity of Tyre. Now, do I need to remind us, because I think for most of it, it's been fairly well ingrained, that God despises pride. God opposes the proud. The Bible says that God will bring His forces and His power to bear against the proud, but He will bring grace readily and quickly to the humble. And of course, when we're talking about biblical definitions of pride and humility... We're talking about the difference in this kind of way. Pride basically is about making much of myself, not so much of God. Humility is making a lot of God, but not so much of myself. So he opposes the proud 
And he gives great grace and favor and blessing to the humble. So let's talk for a moment about what does it look like to be humble? What is humility? And I want to kind of tease this out from some cultural nuances that have really skewed what this whole pride to humility factor is about. We now are in a day where the the meaning and the nuance, the connotation of pride has been flipped. uh, Where humility has been flipped. So, uh, biblically, if you come to a point where you are convinced that God is the Lord of life, that God is supreme in value and, and supreme in, in my uh, allegiance and that I will uh, value anything and everything else way below my valuing of God. If you come to that kind of conviction, the Bible calls that humility. Making much of God, little of yourself. Our culture calls that pride. You make much of God, God's the man, God's the way, God's uh, the truth, etc. They're like, how arrogant of you to think that. How narrow of you to think that you have all that contained in your God, your truth. You see how that's been flipped in our culture today? And friend, if you're not careful, you'll fall into a trap and you think you're moving in humble ways, which by the way, now the, the nuance for humility is this. Well, I don't know. Are you certain about faith? Are you certain about God? Are you certain about the things of Scripture? Uh, no, i got a lot of doubts. You're a very humble person. See, our culture has totally flipped that and skewed that. And so we're going to talk about if you're going to build a life and you're going to build that upon God, that means you're going to be making much of God in your life, little of yourself. And in that process, you will be very countercultural. And it will begin to look something like this. You will subordinate your life to Christ. He will become preeminent. He will become priority. He will become the most important factor in your life. You will build your life around Him, not find a way to fit Him in to your already existing life. Are you following me? Huge difference. And this is the way the scriptures address that. Matthew 10, 24 says, A disciple is not above his teacher. A slave is not above his master. So if you understand who Jesus is and you're giving your allegiance to him, then everything there is about you gets built around him. We're told, 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. It all begins with my submitting to Christ. And then it continues with my understanding, it's not going to be an easy life. You cannot expect a better treatment in this world than what Christ received. If you're going to follow Him, if you're going to build your life around Him, you're going to have hardship about that. Our culture and our world will combat you about that because they combated Him. We're told... Matthew 10.25, if they have called the head of the house, Beelzebub, if they've referred to Jesus as having a demon, how much more will they malign the members of his household, his followers, his people? If they thought there was something wrong with him, that he needed to be stopped 
Friends are going to think the same thing about you and me as we follow him. First Peter 2.21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but handed his cause over to him, to the Father, who judges righteously. In other words, as you continue to walk with Christ, stand with Christ, be a person of conviction, humbly under him, and uh, receiving whatever opposition and mistreatment that that can bring, you do so without retaliation. You do so without malice. You do so without exerting force upon people in retaliation. Then we're told in the third place, humility looks like this. It asserts truth. But it does so as a service to Christ. It doesn't assert truth for my own ego. Here's the way life happens. I just happen to know. It doesn't do that to assert self. Rather, truth is presented to assert Christ in service to Christ. We're told in Matthew 10, 27 28, what I, Jesus, what I tell you in the darkness, speak it in the light. Do not fear. I'm going to be communicating truth to your life. And whatever I speak into your life, in your devotional time, in your scripture readings, in your meditations, in your worship gatherings, in your small groups, in whatever setting that I begin to communicate into your heart, whatever I'm communicating to you, I want you to speak that into the light. I want you to be sharing truth. Don't fear. And then he tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We're here as humble servants. It's not about us. We have a message that's not our own. We didn't create it. We didn't fabricate it. We share the message that he puts into our heart. That's humility. And then we're told in the fourth place, the person who's building his life upon God, who is battling and fighting against pride and living humbly before the Lord, knows all of that depends upon grace. In this sense, in the truest sense, when you begin to have a life that is a godly, Christ-type life, you didn't build it. Okay? You got grace to build that thing. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? There's nothing that you have that you didn't receive. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You've got people skills, you've got personality, you've got charisma, you've got talent, you've got uh, various abilities. You've got a a mind that can comprehend with some uh, powerful intellect, etc., etc. Listen, that's nothing to be proud about. All that's been given to you. You did some work to develop it. You've had stewardship, but it didn't originate with you. James 1.21, in humility... 
Receive the word that's implanted, which is able to save your soul. And then let me say in the final place, number five. The person that's humble, the person that is building a life in Christ, knows I'm fallible. I'm frail. I can make mistakes. I do. But at the same time, I am compelled to be a Christ person. Now, I may screw that up a little bit. I may make some mistakes while I'm compelled to be a Christ person, while I'm trying to convey to you things that God's communicating to my heart, while I'm sharing truth. I may not do that well on occasion. But that's still my life. That's still my calling. That's still the expectation that God has about my life. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. So we're in a broken time. We're in a time where we don't see everything clearly. But we're also in a time, 2 Corinthians five eleven, where knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. I won't do that perfectly. I won't do that without error. I won't do that without maybe uh, hurting somebody unnecessarily at some point or or something like that. But I still have a a conviction, a a call, a compelling that I have to do, do these things and live in these ways. Now, uh, who knows what that picture is about? Okay. Uh, you guys must have grown up in Sunday school. So that would be uh, a depiction of Daniel in the lion's den. You won't be into Daniel this week. You'll get into Daniel next week. And I'm going to talk about Daniel next week, but I'm not going to talk about this story. So I said I've got to talk about it today. Because it's one of our favorite stories, particularly if you were a child and you grew up with the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And what I want to do for just a moment is, if it's possible, to take the story of Daniel and the lion's den out of children's narrative and into lives built upon God kinds of reality. Real quickly, Daniel is one of those that have been taken out of Jerusalem when it was conquered and taken to Babylon where he became a servant to the king and to that kingdom. He rose very quickly in uh, power and influence and prestige so that he became kind of like the number two guy. He was certainly in the circle of top three of uh, advisors to King Darius. The other Babylonian leaders were very jealous of Daniel. And they were thinking, how can we find a way to knock this guy down a few rungs? Because the king was just really taken with Daniel. And they couldn't find a way. They looked here, they looked there, and they couldn't find a way to, to knock Daniel down a notch or two because his character and his integrity were impeccable. So they came up with this plan. Let's go tell the king, there's nobody like you, king. In fact, you're so great, you're so awesome, we think you ought to make a law for the next 30 days. No one can call upon their God or call upon any other entity but you, because you're it. You know, I'm the man. And the king thought that was a good idea. 
And so he made that into a law, and not just a law, but it was uh, an edict of the Medes and Persians, which was code for unbreakable, you can't violate this law at all, you die if you do, the kind of thing. And so they, they were like, we got him now. Because Daniel had a habit of three times a day going to a place to pray, and they knew where that was. And so right after this thing gets signed and it's sealed and it's a done deal, Daniel's at his normal place of prayer. These conniving guys come over. They catch him. You know, paparazzi pop him. And then they bring it all over to the king. Look what Daniel's done. Here, you've made this edict. No one's to call upon any other god or any other deity but you over these next 30 days. And he's, he's broken it on the first day. You've got to kill him. You, you must throw him to the lion's den. Okay? So that's the part that you got in the children's story. So these hungry, ravenous lions are thrown into this pit or this dungeon area and they bring Daniel in and, you know, you would expect within minutes they would tear him limb to limb and eat him up. They seal it so Daniel can't get out. The king is distraught because he's, he loves Daniel and he doesn't want anything to happen to Daniel. In fact, he even prays to Daniel's God whom he does not know. Oh, Daniel's God... Help Daniel. And he fasts and, he, and he's in agony all night about it. So the next morning, the king rushes over to the den where the lions are to see if Daniel, by any chance, by any stretch of the imagination, is still alive. And sure enough, Daniel, as you see in the picture, is just standing there with the lions. Everything's fine. My God shut their mouths so that they did not come against me. Now, why do we have that story? Uh, if we're talking about this with children, there's all kinds of lessons. We can talk about Daniel's faith, how he believed God. We can talk about Daniel's courage, how in the most fearsome kinds of situations, he was just going to be there and stand with God and so on. But here's the deal. This story is there, and it's in our scriptures, not because of Daniel's faith, not because of Daniel's courage, not because Daniel took a stand, not for anything to do with Daniel. This story is there to show you how great and awesome God is. He's going, well, how do you know? Because it's sure looking like Daniel's a pretty faithful, courage, you know... You know it by this. When the king finds out Daniel has been spared and that he has not been torn limb to limb by these lions, he immediately turns to God and says, Oh, what a great God is the God of Daniel. And then he issues edicts to the Babylonians that they must esteem Daniel's God above every other God. This was all about the greatness of God. Nothing. Really, about Daniel. Which is the point that we're talking about today. What kind of life, with God's help and God's grace, are you building? It's too short of a life and it's too tragic of an end for you to chase various trophies and, and accomplishments and, and pursuits and find out all in the end, you know, what was I doing? Where was I going? And you know, what difference does all this stuff mean anyway? When it's all found in the person of God 
and knowing God, doing life with God, being transformed by God. So, what do you do with that? Will you build your life with the plans of God? He has plans. And plans that are so great and grand and specific that they include you. He has specific plans for you. Will you build your life with His plans for His purposes? God allows you to have a life story that's full of accomplishments and influence, there's a purpose to that. God's script for you involves a lot of heartache and pain and disappointment and setbacks. There is a purpose for that. Will you build with His plans on His purposes in relationship with Him? Daniel was entrusted by God with great influence, great power, great position. And it was all for purpose. And it was all in the context of being in a relationship with God. That's all that really mattered to him. Whether he was going to live in a dungeon or live in the palace, he was going to do that with God. What about you? I mean, what are your circumstances? What's the scenario? What's the life script right now? There are plans and purposes. There's a relationship with whom we experience all that. Let's pray together. Father, we just can't even comprehend with the bigness of life and the bigness of this universe and all that's therein that you can be so great that you can be mindful of little old me of the person next to me of the people in this room that you can be so great that you have plans and purposes for each one and that you invite us gift above all gifts, treasure above all treasure, that we can have a relationship with You. So, Father, for my friends that are listening right now, I pray, would You stir conviction? Would By Your Spirit, would You convince our minds and our hearts of this reality? And that we would humbly yield ourselves to you. In Christ's name. In Christ's name. That's the only name we have to pray in. Amen.